As is commonly the case on the second Sunday night of the month, we are going to be dealing with questions that have been submitted by the members and guests to our assembly, and hopefully we'll be able to find some biblical answers to some of the questions that we have. I'll just tell you that as far as my records go, these are the last two questions that I have. So if you have some questions that you want dealt with, it may be that but I've just lost some somewhere, and if you had one that was overlooked, let me know. We'll take care of that sometime. Or maybe you have some questions that you've just forgotten to submit. If that's the case, please email it or place one in the box outside my office. We'll be happy to take care of those as we have opportunity on the second Sunday night of the month that is to come. As always, I certainly don't answer any of these questions because I think that somehow I have all the answers. But rather, we answer these questions because we think that the Bible has the answers to the questions that we have. And if in anything you think that I have not provided a biblical response, please feel free to talk with me about that. I'd love to study with you as we can learn from one another so that we can help each other serve the Lord and glorify Him and go to heaven and be with Him forever. Tonight we're going to be dealing with two separate questions, completely separate questions, questions that have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But that's kind of the the fun of this night, that we can talk about multiple things. And since I only preached about 20 minutes this morning, I've got some extra time tonight. So we can go a little bit long if we need to. However, the first question that we want to look at is, what is the Church of Christ translation of the Bible? Well, we need to recognize that the simple answer to that question is, well, there just isn't one. There is no Church of Christ translation of the Bible. The first thing that we need to recognize, of course, is what the Church of Christ is. In Acts chapter 2, we find the church established in Acts chapter 2. And at the end of that chapter, in verse 46, it says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily the number who were being saved. Here we find Christ's church, and the concept is the church is merely, that universal church, is merely the collective of all the saved. It is not a collective of local churches. It is not some organization that has bonded together of all these churches, that has a hierarchy and a government and all these types of things so that they can write a translation of the Bible or even place their stamp of approval on a translation of the Bible. The church of Christ is merely the universal collectivity of all those people who are saved of all time. That's, that's all it is. And so there is no Bible that is the, quote, Church of Christ translation of the Bible. However, I'd like for us to use this question as a jumping-off point just to help us in understanding some things. What I'd really like to do is just share with you with what I think are some good principles to help you in choosing translations and using translations. I'm, I'm going to confess something to you. A couple of years ago, if somebody asked me what translation they should use, I would have, I would have gone on and on arguing in favor of one and rebuking some and one day it dawned on me, you know, I don't have any idea what I'm talking about. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't know Hebrew. I really have no way to tell you which ones are the best translation. Sometimes I, I make uh, judgments based upon context of ones that I think are, are conveying the point that I think is in the text more. But the reality is I don't know any Greek and I don't know any Hebrew, so I can't really judge that. And all my arguments are always based on what somebody else said. So I have ceased to start telling people which ones they're supposed to use and which ones they're not allowed to use. But I think there are some good, solid pieces of advice that all of us need to follow as we use differing translations in our study and in our teaching. And I'd just like to share some of those principles that I follow with you. So uh, I want us to, to 
work on understanding and choosing the translations that we're going to use. The first principle that I would provide is rely on translations that come from a group rather than one person. I'm not saying don't ever use translations that just came from one person. For instance, you have like the J.B. Phillips translation, and I'm sure that it's great. I'm sure that he says a lot of good things, but what we need to understand, when we're getting a translation that came from one individual, we're not finding translation that has had gone through checks and balances, that has been put to the test, that has been checked by other people. We're looking at one person and their scholarship and what they think. And that's fine. I call my friends who know the Greek and Hebrew languages all the time. And I ask them, what do you think about this? What do you think the best wording is? But when we get a translation that comes from one individual, that's all we're getting is their opinion. When you're getting a translation that comes from a group of people that have worked together, you've got all these scholars with slightly different backgrounds that are putting one another to the test. There's checks and balances as one person will translate a passage, but then they'll make some others check it and make sure that they think it's consistent with the rest of the biblical usage. So I would suggest to you, especially for your main Bible that you're going to use, make sure that it's one that was translated by a group of people and not just a single person. Again, I'm not saying don't use one from a single person. Just understand what it is and use it properly. Second piece of advice that I would give, rely on a non-denominational or interdenominational translation, however they want to describe it. But one of the things that we have to be careful of is that if there is a particular translation that has been translated and everybody working on it comes from the exact same denomination, one of the dangers that you face is that they'll get their doctrinal cart before their translation horse. And what I mean by that is is they have a point that they want to prove about a passage, and instead of actually translating what the passage says, they will interpret into that passage. They'll put into that passage what they want to be there. I can give you one of the most extreme examples of that, and that's the New World Translation that was put out by the Jehovah's Witness Church, by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And one major example is John chapter 1 and verse 1, which we know what that says. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, right? Well, in the New World Translation, because the Jehovah's Witness Church teaches that Jesus is not deity, but rather a lesser God, of a lesser nature, their translation, and it's just absolutely proven that it's not right. No one, except those from the Jehovah's Witness Church, believe that it is remotely what's supposed to be there. Their translation says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was a God. You see the difference there? That's because it all came from that one denomination or that one church. And so we have to be careful when we're using that. Again, I'm not saying don't ever use any translation like that, but we just need to understand what we're dealing with. If everybody on the translation committee of the church came from one, of the Bible came from one denomination, we have to be careful that we're not going to get their doctrine instead of just what the Bible is saying. One of the things that we have to be careful with here, though, is that this is not necessarily very easy to accomplish because even the King James Bible was written by a bunch of Anglicans who just wanted to please the king. And if you study some history there, you find out that they had some serious issues that they were dealing with that affected their translation. I'm not saying the King James Bible is bad. It's, it's very good. It's pointing out how that can affect the translation. The third thing that we recognize, rely on a translation you can understand. Now, I understand that some of our brethren have the idea that Moses brought the King James translation down from the mountain and that Paul 
inspired the old American standard. And so that we need to, we have to use the King James Version or that old American standard because those are the premier translations and, and, and we just if we use anything else that means we're slipping off the deep end, we're going into liberalism. How dare we do anything that might be written in our modern language that we could possibly understand? Now, the reality is, if you can understand the King James Bible, and if you can understand the Old American Standard, that's fine. Use those. Those are great. I'm not saying those are bad translations. They're wonderful. But for the rest of us who aren't quite that smart, it's not bad for us to use translations that are written in language that we can understand. It's just not bad. In fact, it's good. Remember, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 that he had written, and by reading what he wrote, they could understand. He wrote it in a way that the people who were in his day could understand. Therefore, I think God is perfectly pleased with us getting a translation that is written in a way that our modern society can actually understand what is written and doesn't have to take a course in Middle English or in 1611 English or in 1901 English to try to understand it. It's okay for us to use translations that we can understand what they say. I mean, that's what God wants us to do with the Bible. He wants us to understand it. The fourth thing, understand the translation philosophy. Whatever Bible you have, usually, if you look in the front of it, you'll find that the translators will provide a little essay about their translation philosophy. Now I want to explain to you what that means. And what I'm about to share with you, I'm not saying that any of these are good or bad. I'm just saying they're different and we have to use them appropriately in the way that, that's profitable for our study. The reality is, in biblical translations, there is a spectrum. And I want you to picture that in your mind, a spectrum of translation. All the way on one side, you have folks that try to be absolutely the most literal, and all the way on the other side, you have folks that all, all they care about is, we just want to make sure you get the meaning, and so we're really not worried if we're translating it exactly correctly, as long as you understand the point. And then there's everything in between. And so you'll hear folks talk about word-for-word -word translation, or literal translation. The Bibles that have this approach what they want to do is take the Greek words and supply the English words and put them as close an order to the Greek as possible. But what you need to understand, and what I need to understand, is that Greek grammar is not the same as English grammar. And because of that, the word order is just not the same. And if somebody translated the Bible from the Greek exactly word for word in the exact order, we would have a terrible time trying to understand it. Because words would be out of order, tenses would look a little bit odd, it just would be difficult for us to understand. But there are some Bibles that try to get it as close as possible, and the farther over they are on that scale, they would say that they have a word-for-word -word translation philosophy. Perhaps the one that is most popular among our brethren that would be the furthest on this scale is, is the Old American Standard. And that's one of the reasons sometimes it has very confusing construction, because they tried really hard to keep it at that word-for-word -word rate. And so sometimes it gets a little bit confusing. It seems like... Things don't just flow exactly right, but you are getting a pretty good translation as far as what the original Greek actually said. The New American Standard, a little bit easier, not quite as far over on that spectrum, but moving a little bit more to the, to the further side of the spectrum. But then we move over to what's called word for word and then thought for thought. The idea of thought for thought is, instead of here's the Greek word and then here's the English word that translates that, let's take a look at the sentence, what's the thought behind the sentence, and let's come up with an English sentence that means essentially the same thing. 
So we're not exactly as concerned with translating the words accurately as far as we're figuring out what the meaning of the sentence is and we're going to provide a sentence that has an equivalent meaning. Thought for thought. The most popular Bible, I think, that has this translation philosophy is the New International Version. It's that idea of thought for thought. Now, here's what we need to understand about these translations. And, and these even have kind of a spectrum. You have the, the thought for thought moving more to the right and more to the left. One of the things we have to be careful of with these translations is that when the translator moves from word for word to thought for thought, now, I'm just figuring out what the sentence means and providing a sentence that means the same thing. Sometimes they can move away from translating and start putting in their interpretation. Here's what I think the author's point was, and so even though those weren't the words he used, I'm going to write a sentence that demonstrates the point I think he had. And, that, and we just have to be careful with that. I'm not saying we don't use them. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying we should get rid of them. I'm just saying we need to understand the philosophy so that we can know how to use them. Some move from this thought for thought even further to what they call dynamic equivalence, which, uh, depending on where you look and who you study and who you talk to, is, is similar to this thought for thought. For, for others, it's a little bit looser. It's the idea that we're going to take even the idioms and we're going to change them. Now, an idiom is a phrase or figure of speech that is specific to a culture. I mean, we have all kinds of, of idioms today. We'd say, oh, that's cool. That's an idiom. You know, if you have a person that knows who speaks Greek and they're trying to learn English, and you say that's cool, what are they? What are they going to think you're saying? Well, they're going to think you're saying it's cold. It's got a low temperature. You're saying, wow, that's really, that's really neat. Which, by the way, is another idiom. Uh, you, basically, what you're saying is, I like it. So what they'll do is try to take these idioms and change them into something that would be similar to, to what we would say. Perhaps one of the best examples of that is taking money. And you, in, in these dynamic equivalents, you won't read about denarius or, or minas or talents. You'll read about you know, $5 and $50,000, that dynamic equivalence. We're just trying to give you an equivalent so you can understand the point. But again, the problem is, and, and just what we have to be careful of, not that it's bad, not that it's wrong, we just have to use it properly, that when folks are doing that, they can step away from actually translating and start interpreting and telling us what the message is instead of just what was written. Then we move even further on that spectrum to paraphrase Bibles. Now, paraphrase Bibles are not bad. They're not wrong. I'm just suggesting that you don't use them as your main Bible. A paraphrase is where you would say, in other words. And then you try to make it simple. Preachers do that all the time, don't they? They'll read a verse and they say, now, in other words, or what this means is, and then they try to lay it out simply. So there's nothing wrong with paraphrasing or trying to simplify. We just need to understand what happens if we're using that as our main Bible we're not getting the translation. We're not getting what the authors wrote. We're getting what somebody else who read the authors, what they think is meant, and then they're telling us that. Additionally, most of the paraphrases aren't even paraphrased from the original languages. Most of them come from translation. So, you've got the original that was translated by somebody who turns around somebody else paraphrases what somebody else translated, and you can see the trouble that we have. Again, might be great to look at those as kind of a reference material to see what somebody thinks it means to help us understand maybe the point. But we need to understand that that probably shouldn't be our main Bible just because it's not really a translation. It's not telling us what's really there. So these are just some guide, guideposts that I think you can use to help as you try to figure out which translations to use, how to rely on them. Take a look sometimes at the front of your Bible 
Look at the essay that they provide and what their translation philosophy is, and that will help you use it more accurately. Again, just briefly, rely on translations that come from a group rather than one person. Rely on non-denominational translations. Rely on one that you can understand, and make sure you understand the translation philosophy so that you can use it properly. I hope that's beneficial to you as you take a look at the Bible you're using now and the other Bibles that you have for your study. And listen, what I would encourage you, while each of us is probably going to have a main Bible, in your personal study you really ought to use more than one translation. If all you have is one translation, I don't care which one it is. The reality is it's got problems in it. I mean, just start talking to somebody who actually knows the language, and they'll, they'll admit to you, well, the King James has this problem here, the English Standard has this problem there, the New American Standard, so it's really good for us to look at all the translations. There's not any problem in those main translations that's going to cost us our souls. But as far as just having an accurate translation, they all have pluses and they all have minuses, and so it's really good in our study to use multiple translations. All right, question number two. I told you these are really different questions. Totally opposite ends of the biblical spectrum as far as we're answering these questions. Is it wrong to circumcise today? We look in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 2 says, in the English Standard Version, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now Paul's statement there in Galatians 5, verses 2 through 5, or 2 through 4, seemed pretty harsh, pretty strong. It would seem to leave no doubt circumcision is just wrong. And yet that leaves us in a bit of a quandary today. In fact, I did a little bit of research the other day. And while the numbers are dropping for circumcision in America, the fact is more than half of the boys that are born these days are circumcised. Are all of those boys now consigned to hell forever because they were circumcised and Paul said no circumcision? Are their parents destined for eternal damnation because they're circumcising these little boys? I mean, Paul said if you accept circumcision, you've fallen from grace. You are severed from Christ. But the thing that we need to understand about Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, is that Paul was not just talking about circumcision as an action itself. He was talking about circumcision for a purpose. Notice how he concluded that in verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. These are not just people who were circumcising their children for one reason or another. These were people who were circumcising their children in order to be justified by the law. Who were doing it because the old covenant said that in order to be in a covenant relationship with God, you have to be circumcised. And therefore, if I want to be saved, I have to be circumcised. If that's why a person is getting circumcised, then it is, in fact, Unlawful. It is wrong if you are being circumcised to be justified by the law. In fact, we'll notice in Acts chapter 15, that was the argument. They were debating, did the Gentiles have to be circumcised? And Paul and Peter and Barnabas and James all made their argument and they declared the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised. And in Galatians chapter 2, 
Paul talks about the trip that they had made there, and I believe it's talking about the trip in Acts chapter 15. And in Galatians 2 and verse 1 it says, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Titus, of course, was a Gentile. I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, <coughs> Excuse me. in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Here, Paul absolutely refused to allow Titus to be circumcised. Why? Because the whole question was about whether or not he had to do it in order to be saved, in order to be justified. And he refused to allow it to happen. It would have been wrong for Titus to have become circumcised in order to be justified. However, we all know about Acts chapter 16 and verse 3, don't we? In Acts chapter 16 and verse 3, we see what seems to be the exact opposite. In Acts 16 and verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. On the one hand, Paul absolutely refuses to allow Titus to be circumcised, but with Timothy, he performs the circumcision himself, it seems. Well, what's the difference? The issue with Titus was about being justified or being saved. The issue with Timothy was about not being a stumbling block to others. They were going to teach the Jews, and Timothy had been half Jewish. His mother was Jewish, and his father was not. And yet he hadn't been circumcised. I don't have any idea how the Jews in those parts would know whether or not Timothy had been circumcised, but apparently Paul thought they might find out. And so, to keep from being a stumbling block to the Jews that they might teach, they had Timothy circumcised, but not to be justified by the law, to keep from being a stumbling block to the other Jews who would hear the teaching. Now, I mean, think about this, and this, this perhaps tells us something about evangelism. I'll just throw this in for free. Had these been mature Christian Jews that they were dealing with, they should have known that circumcision was unnecessary. But you see, Paul and Timothy were not going to teach mature Christians. They were going to teach the lost, who didn't understand. And instead of expecting the lost people to be as mature as people who have been Christians for years, they decided to keep from being a stumbling block so that they could teach. And in the same way, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians that, you know what, I, I, I'm not going to eat meat before Jews that I'm going to teach because I don't want to cause them to stumble. He wasn't doing that to be justified by the law. But because he recognized, if he took somebody who, who was Jewish and wanted to be kosher and said, hey, let's go to Cracker Barrel and have some sausage for breakfast, probably not going to get very far in trying to teach them. And so that's what's going on here. So what we need to understand is that if somebody's being circumcised for some reason other than being justified by the law, it's not wrong. It is lawful. It's okay. The two main reasons in the United States for people being circumcised is health and hygiene, and so that they will be like their parents, be like their father. Those are the reasons that most children are circumcised here in the United States. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. No one's going to be lost. No one's going to be condemned for eternity because they were circumcised for that reason. However, if you think that in some way doing that makes you justified because of what was in the old law, Paul did say, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. But what's most interesting about this question of circumcision is that Paul points out that really, even throughout all history, God was concerned about something more than He was the circumcision of the flesh. And that's the circumcision of the heart. 
In Romans chapter 2 and verse 29, Paul said in Romans 2.29, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Excuse me, his praise is not from man, but from God. In fact, let me back up and read verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart. Paul in Colossians chapter 2 made a similar point. Colossians chapter 2, as he talked about the spiritual circumcision that God wants us to undergo. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, Paul wrote, Colossians 2 and verse 11, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Paul relates circumcision to what happens in baptism. He points out that the reason is is that the circumcision that's important is not the circumcision of the flesh. It's not excising some of our flesh away from our body, but rather excising from our spirit the desires of the flesh, the control of the flesh. This is what Paul says we need to circumcise. This is what Paul says we need to get rid of. Not a little amount of our flesh, but the flesh's control over our spirit. And we start that process when we're baptized into Christ. And He circumcises our hearts, he brings us into His family, forgiving us of our sins, nailing that debt to the cross so that we can be forgiven and glorify God. Is it wrong to circumcise today? Yes, if you're doing it in order to be justified by the law. No, if you're doing it for some other reason. Because what God has always cared about is that we circumcise our hearts and be followers of His. I hope our answers tonight have been beneficial to you, have edified you, and helped you. Like I said, those are the last questions I have. If you have some questions that you would like dealt with, please let me know by emailing it to me or by putting it in the box outside my office. Please make sure to write your name on it, however, uh, not because I just don't accept anonymous questions, but because, just to be honest with you, you have something in your mind. Sometimes you write it down on paper, and I don't understand it. I remember... Uh, a brother told me one time that a, a person said, you know, I really wish you would do a sermon on repentance. I just really need to hear a sermon on repentance. So he preached a sermon on repentance. He said he had studied and he had worked and he had preached and he labored. And it came out, he said he knocked it out of the park. And so he found the guy who asked him, he said, uh, hey, what did you think of my sermon? He said, well, that was great. But what I really wanted to know was about Judas and his repentance or lack thereof. So the reason why I ask you to put your name on it is because a lot of times I get the questions and I may not understand exactly what you're asking and I need to call you. Otherwise, it's going to go in the round file and it'll just get lost and, and it'll never get dealt with. So please put your name on it. Again, as always, uh, we don't answer these because I somehow have all the answers. I could be wrong. If you think I missed it, please let me know what you think from the Bible and let's talk about that. But we do answer the questions because we think the Bible gives us the answers to the questions that are important to us.